0: Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr Maureen Nychallig, NUI Postdoctoral Research Fellow in History at the School of History and Archives, University College Dublin. Her PhD thesis examined perceptions of archaeological monuments in 19th century Ireland. Her current research centres on 17th century gardens, focusing in particular on Irish urban contexts. Her paper is entitled, Divers Good Plots Devised. Urban gardens in 17th century Ireland. So, starting off, uh,
1: writing of perceptions of Scottish gardens before the 17th century, uh, David Allen noted that until recently, um, or relatively recently, the general picture was a relatively depressing one. Uh, Citing E.H.M. Cox, author of A Definitive History of Scottish Gardening, he noted the assumption that gardening required periods of peace and plenty in which to flourish and was inhibited by war, deprivation and the habitual cultural marginality of a country which lay in a backwater out of touch with the rest of the world. While it's arguable that a similar perception formerly underpinned uh, perceptions of of Irish history in general, and I'm kind of talking about uh, uh, traditional um, uh, narratives, uh, particularly that of the later Middle Ages and into the 17th century, work on Irish gardens of the period has been less prone to gloomy assertions of cultural backwardness and deprivation. A picture has emerged of 17th century garden creation that includes ideological, religious and moral attitudes towards uh, gardens and plants, as well as the laying out of the terraces, lodges, vegetable gardens, parterres, formal planting beds, bowling greens, garden buildings and orchards that follow the percolation of what's been termed renaissance and restoration fashions into Ireland. Toby Barnard and Peter Bow in particular evoke a world in which religious and political identity, wealth and gender could be given physical form through garden design and plants. While many of the inhabitants of this world were products of post-Reformation settlement and plantation, recent studies of the contemporary homes of Gaelic and Old English gentry families intimate that similarly complex interactions of ideological and pragmatic concerns may have dictated the forms taken by their gardens. In both contexts, gardens are assumed to have existed as integral parts of the material culture and mundane practice of 17th century lives that following the precepts of of Maus and Bourdieu, uh, installed and reproduced the cultural norms and the defining spaces of everyday human existence. They're also assumed to have been shaped by the interaction between medieval and modern uh, modes of perception, as well as by uh, the kind of the now normal native and foreign ways of engaging with the natural and human environment. Um, However, when it comes to the study of urban gardens and the often proportionately huge areas of Ireland's towns and cities that were open to the sky... Allen's analysis becomes more applicable in an Irish context. With the exception of a handful of examples that belonged to members uh, of the 17th century monetary and administrative upper echelons, uh, and also the the institutions that followed them, uh, urban gardens seem as a general rule to be too poorly documented, too ephemeral, too closely related to basic economic functions, are too simple in their apparent uses to yield information on 17th century city life. Although there may not be a widespread assumption that gardening actually stopped in times of war, there may be a tacit feeling that centuries of urban development and changing garden fashions have had much the same disruptive uh, impact on vulnerable 17th century layouts as the most destructive of military campaigns. Uh, This may be exaggerated by the fact that historical forces acting at the level of the country as a whole were arguably more likely to have a disproportionately high impact on the handful of documented gardens as these belonged to those individuals most likely to suffer loss of lands and the physical and symbolic reorganisation of their properties in the aftermath of political upheavals. Uh, consequently, these gardens, and I've actually tr- thrown up, that's uh, one of the images of, of Trinity in Dainley's uh, late 17th century uh, um, account of, of Ireland when he was wandering around. Uh, consequently, these gardens, such as those of uh, Sir Arthur Chichester at Belfast, uh, also he had gardens at Carrick Fergus and at Joymount, um, uh, and at, at Dublin, the Duke of Ormond at Kilkenny, the Earl of Cork at Yall, or the Earl of Clanrickard at Portumna, may have taken on a heightened and potentially disproportionate symbolic and historic in, uh, importance in later narratives. Uh, this may be further exaggerated by the fact that the styles and systems of spatial organisation that were used in these elite urban gardens reflected processes of cultural exchange between the elite uh, literary communities in Ireland and Britain, and to a lesser degree, France and the Netherlands. It's tempting under these circumstances to fall back in conclusion that the activities carried out within these scattered and often suburban high status gardens uh, were unrepresentative and were largely unavailable to the 17th century man or woman in the street. The end result might be a two-tier perception of urban gardens that, like some contemporary maps, uh, which is why I happily uh, threw up to uh, representation of Dublin, renders the often extramural gardens of the rich in some detail, Uh, but represents the large areas of urban space in which most townspeople lived as blank and featureless places subordinate and almost incidental to the streets and the buildings that edged them. That this is highly unlikely to have reflected the reality of 17th century engagement with urban urban gardens is reflected by the sheer variety of uses to which those supposedly blank spaces were put. Uh, Within the the outlines that you see on on de Gaulle's map there were yards, courtyards, backsides, um, wonderfully uh, denominated uh, gardens, orchards, as well as the more uh, exotic sounding tofts and messages, all of which were often further defined by the use of adjectives that categorise them as either small or large. Poetic and other literary sources also abound with references to plants, flowers and concepts of growth Uh, that reflected wider philosophical and cultural understandings and the truly animated understandings of gardens in cities as well as in the country. And this uh, obviously wasn't exclusive to to Anglophone narratives there there are um, very well defined uh, metaphors of of fertility growth, uh, fruit trees uh, nut trees within the Irish uh, uh, bardic tradition Uh, and certainly archaeological evidence suggests that similar plants were being uh, grown uh, again across the country um, within uh, a supposedly Gaelic or Um, uh, our our plantar contexts combined with brief incidental references in the same sources that yield information on the wider cultural history of the period a series of motifs and themes emerges that when examined uh, yield some insight into the urban gardens of those who are a few steps below the great territorial magnates and even individuals of the middling and lower sort when the faint archaeological and historical traces of these gardens are compared against contemporary garden trends and assessed in the context of associated architectural features, their outlines come into sharper focus and the understandings that they imbo- may have embodied and shaped uh, also begin to emerge. To paraphrase Tygo Keefe, in gardens no less than in the streets, the meanings attached to walls, plants and the soil itself enabled city dwellers to negotiate urban space and to create multiple and historically contingent images of themselves, their lives and their places in the wider world. Uh, So in the remainder of the paper, I will attempt to draw out some of these multiple meanings by looking at how uh, plots and garden spaces uh, may have ordered the the, uh, spatial and also the the chronological structures within which uh, 17th century city people lived and moved. Uh, And by, again, almost kind of incidental process, uh, this is going to feed into Gertie Keane's paper yesterday on on Kilkenny, because um, uh, uh, some of the the examples that I've used are are primarily related to uh, Kilkenny. Um, So Although the late uh, 16th and 17th centuries saw considerable urban expansion in some Irish towns and cities, the long, thin, burgage plot uh, uh, of the Middle Ages remained the dominant structural element of the early modern Irish town. Uh, While individual houses might be of different heights and of different materials, the discipline imposed by similar and repeated plot widths could establish a rhythm of regular uh, forward movement through the streets that might easily push the passerby in small increments towards the gates and out into the countryside. Uh, By the beginning of the 18th century, as flat brick elevations, pierced by regular openings, replaced cagework houses along street frontages. Uh, This movement may have accelerated as the eye of the individual skated along street frontages and was lured into the distance by the perspectival shrinking of gables, chimneys and windows. In tandem with this opening up of lengthier perspectives... Came celebration of walking, of the promenade, of the city presented as an unrolling series of perspective views that, in an Irish context at least, were very seldom deliberately closed by the erection of imposing buildings or structures. Uh, In cartographic and art historical (coughs) studies, this movement, together with the development of long views and the perspectival expansion of space, have been uh, associated with the development of what's been termed a Renaissance spatial awareness. Uh, This, in turn, has been tied in with concepts of individualism, colonial expansion, and the erosion of older, (coughs) established uh, ways of thinking about space. It has been argued that in the Middle Ages, for example, based on church-filtered Aristotelian and classical precepts, space was not a distance. It was instead something surrounding or containing a limit. To quote Terry Comito. Uh, Aristotelian space was thus, quote, essentially definable, which is to say both that it had a boundary, an objective form, and that it was uh, intelligible to the human mind, end quote. It therefore existed earlier than in, and uh, in a way that was distinct from Pascalian visions of a tiny human world lost in the expanses of an infinite universe. Viewed against this intellectual backdrop, it might be argued that the walled gardens uh, uh, of, of towns and walled gardens in general were, by definition, places liable to be perceived in older spatial terms, from the Hortus conclusives of the Virgin to the more ambivalently conceived ple- pleasure gardens of paradise in the classical world. Uh, given the narrow dimensions of many urban plot widths and the necessity of clearly distinguishing one property from another, gardens in cities with their walls, fences and hedges may have been particularly prone to being understood in these uh, uh, Aristotelian terms, and actually when I'm using Aristotelian now having heard Ian Campbell uh, on, on Aristotle, very crude, my use but it is amazingly crude uh, by comparison, but uh, they may also have been more likely to be imagined in opposition to the street, as entry into burgage plots reta- required visitors to turn themselves uh, in uh, an arc of 180 degrees and to position themselves on a different spatial axis, axis that would lead them away from the traffic of the street and into sequences of enclosing domestic or open spaces. In Ireland, where expansive spatial visions and the reordering of uh, of urban spaces formed part of the the kit of parts of uh, Protestant or New English improvement programmes, and where where adherence to older forms of material culture could act as statements of cultural identity, we might broadly expect the urban gardens of Catholic or Old English residents to give prominence to medieval elements uh, as expressions of cultural ambivalence or even of resistance. It should be borne in mind, however, that the Tudor and Stuart, uh, uh, early Stuart humanism that underpinned the new English visions of gardens layered complex nets of symbolic meaning over already tried and tested layouts and features, rather than establishing an entirely new formal language distinct from the mounts, banks, flowerbeds, fruit trees, fountains and enclosures of the Middle Ages. Thus, across most of Northern Europe, the same garden elements could be read as simultaneously classical and modern, or as a reflection of spatial and intellectual continuities. Uh, In this context, the potential reading of the same garden elements as either modern or ancient features was a potentially valuable commodity, as it enabled different features to take on varying degrees of prominence depending on uh, who was viewing them, and the sorts of narratives, narratives that their owners wished to convey. This may have been of particular value in Ireland, where urban dwellers, no less than their Gaelic aristocratic counterparts, may have, to cite James Littleton, marshalled the formerly archaic surroundings of their townhouses, uh, uh, formerly sorry, archaic surroundings of their townhouses, to contain contain the genteel lifestyles of early modern life. Where fortunes could rapidly shift and where history writing became an ever more charged process, the constant cycles of seasonal growth that gardens embodied could also be used as contemplative aids as traditional floral metaphors in both English and Irish encouraged perceptions of the mutability of life. Uh, and as the soil itself promoted meditations on rootedness, fertility, and good growth. And in this context, I should say that it's kind of the pun at the start, the diverse good plots, is from the first page of Edmund Spencer's view of the, the history of Ireland, where um, he talks of the Irish soil itself potentially having inherent uh, uh, qualities that then project uh, into the wider uh, world and form uh, the kind of um, reactions and histories of, of, of Irish people. Uh, this was not just true of aristocratic discourses, but also animated perceptions of everyday life, where the cultivation of particular plant species for food positioned individuals with an understanding of status and identity as surely as did clothes artefacts or architecture. And again, in this context, I tell you, you could write a, a massive paper on the, um, the perception of the, the bean plant in 17th century Ireland uh, as, a, as, a, as a metaphor for, for status and, and kind of mutability. Um, Just as plants made seasonal changes visible to human eyes and as the naming of plants brought religious, medical and philosophical systems to mind so gardens may have brought longer chronologies into focus and may have encouraged garden users to consider the multiple layers of meaning that different viewers might attach to the same plant or feature. So in Kilkenny for example, uh, the early Stuart garden of the wealthy Catholic merchant John Roth might be simultaneously read in terms of fashionable English and continental garden styles, or as a perhaps deliberate comment on the expansive spatial perceptions and ambitions of the aspiring new elite. Despite its fine symmetrical front, uh, visitors to Roth House who passed beyond uh, the arcaded front elevation appear to have found themselves directed further and further towards the edge of the plot uh, in a series of sideways movements uh, rather than in the, uh, a single long vista or perspectival view. Um, and, and again if you, it, it, when you go into the courtyard it's, it's symmetrical, you enter through the middle arch but when you arrive in there's a, there's a, a cross building at the side uh, which effectively means that you enter at the, you go through what's effectively a symmetrical front and you arrive in, asymmetrically into the side of a, of a, a roughly square or rectangular uh, uh, courtyard and then you're further pushed sideways when you enter into the next courtyard, it's also set in an angle, so when you come out into the garden the access point is actually like far right uh, an archaeological excavation indicates that the main routeway up to the end of the garden was along that, that right wall uh, uh, along the edge. So we're not looking at uh, kind of the big symmetrical linear vistas that you might get in the houses of, uh, of great magnates, uh, but a kind of a contingent sideways movement uh, through the plot. Um, so it's also significant that in Roth's Will of 1619 he referred to a castle that lay in the orchard at the far western end of his plot. Although John Bradley has suggested that this may refer to Roth's tenancy of a mural tower in this location, it's suggested that the description of the property in the 1650s following its confiscation uh, refers to a summer house next to the town wall, the walls of stone, and the roof slated, uh, also located in what appears to be approximately the same place. Now, assuming, as my great assumption... Uh, Assuming for the moment that the two descriptions uh, refer to the same building, uh, a potential divergence appears to emerge between Roth's early 17th century understanding of the feature and that of the uh, presumably either English or Anglophone surveyor over over 30 years later. Um, The idea of a summer house with its intimations of of seasonal occupation, uh, which is the way it was described in the civil survey uh, of the garden during good weather, Uh, brings to mind contemporary pavilions uh, that were used for uh, banqueting and entertainment similar to the purpose-built example that was erected about 10 years later in the grounds of Kilkenny Castle uh, by the Duke of Ormond Uh, and was one of the architectural marvels of of Restoration Kilkenny. Uh, A castle, on the other hand, links the garden much more firmly with its immediate urban surroundings implying either the existence of an architectural form particularly associated with high and later uh, medieval Irish towns or with a sense of uh, a potential embattled retreat from the world. In this respect, it might be worth noting that Roth's kinsman Richard Shee, who was the possessor of another fine stone house in Kilkenny's High Street, also had a garden retreat, which in his will of 1603 was described as a chamber and study. In the absence of rebuilding and assuming the plot in question corresponds to Shee's property as described in the civil survey, this structure was likely to have been the castle. Uh, that was was uh, was noted uh, by the mid-century surveyors, and which also lay at the far end of Shee's Orchard. The presence of this castle and John Rowe's similar reference together suggests that among the merchant elite of Kilkenny, or potentially among that, that wider family network, certain portions of their gardens may have been set aside as places of retreat and possible solitude. Uh, again, a bit of a leap, but hey, the heck, we're going with it. Uh, While small castles in these areas might serve communal and convivial purposes, their situation within orchards and at the end of gardens subdivided into zones of horticulture and domestic industry mirrored similar relationships between house and garden at contemporary rural estates, albeit in miniature. As as Hanukkah Ronnes has pointed out, the retreat of the educated classes to country haunts was a common motif in wider European uh, discourses that following uh, neo-Stoic and other philosophical precedent, criticised the fickle and unpredictable nature of political power uh, within the wider world. It's certainly true that at the time when both she and Roth were writing their wills, the Catholic merchant families of Kilkenny were attempting to navigate their way through the choppy waters of considerable religious and political change. Under these circumstances, it may not be an exaggeration to suggest that the garden buildings at the end of both She and Roth plots were intended as places of sober minded contemplation, hence perhaps study rather than conviviality or leisure. There may also have been a religious element to this contemplation as the neo stoic glorification of a moderate life away from the courts and arenas of power also accorded well with Christian, monastic and contemplative traditions. Uh, and in this respect, I would note that the she the example was in the will. Um, access to it was left to John Xi, one of uh, Richard Xi's sons, who was a cleric. Um, and this seems to have been a very specific choice. Uh, other children were given rooms within the house, uh, but John Xi uh, was, was actually uh, given access to the chamber. So again, perhaps there is a religious element uh, uh, to the, the use of this building. Uh, If, however, Roth's garden castle was considered in terms of pleasure and feasting, as the mid-century civil survey description suggests, it could, on the other hand, be related to the lodges, banqueting houses and galleries of the mannered and symbolically rich gardens of the aristocratic aristocratic England, rather than to the idiosyncratic tower house buildings uh, traditions of medieval Ireland. It's perfectly possible, of course, that Roth's son Peter may have erected a summer house after his father's death, raising the possibility of, of shifts in family perceptions of urban space over consecutive generations. Um, However, it's arguable that in the eyes of the mid-century surveyor, at least, the structure's prior uses were less important than his own ability to recognise it and to grant it meaning within his own cultural and cosmological structures. It's also potentially significant, however, that by casting Roth's garden buildings as summer house, the surveyor may also have been repositioning the confiscated garden within a world that was closer to modern, worldly and conventionally English upper-class norms than (coughs) to stereotypical assertions of Irish horticultural backwardness. By naming the structure a summer house, the surveyor was also expressing a view of the wider world and the relationships between street and garden that differed from the contemplative uh, uh, vision of of Rotha's property owner or a serious-minded urban citizen. While the occupant of a castle, positioned at the extreme end of the garden, as far from the street as was possible to get, might be expected to have a, a somewhat jaundiced view of public life, by contrast, the occupant of a summer house, with its intimations of frivolity and feasting, might be expected to have a much happier view of their circumstances." They might also be less likely to turn their back on the street, orienting themselves so that like their continental and Stuart counterparts and this is a thing that you get in in, in, uh, Italian Renaissance gardens and uh, uh, in the big London gardens and uh, various other places where the the banqueting houses were were at the back of the gardens but they were looking back across the gardens towards the house uh, and outwards. Um, uh, So as a result they may ultimately be looking back out towards that public world of the the street and movement. Uh, We might also call to mind the movement of the surveyors themselves within the confiscated urban properties of the mid-century as the winding paths that they took in and out of multiple properties blurred the character of the plots as distinct and separate spaces and established them like the elevations that they presented to the street as points along a journey that began and ended elsewhere. In the process they may have largely demystified what were potentially hidden, highly controlled or even private spaces and replaced the scale of engagement of the individual garden owner with the scientific and cartographic sensibilities of conventional colonial expansion, which viewed the urban garden at the administrative level of the city and the country rather than that of the individual. As far as urban gardens are concerned, the civil survey with its reliance on observation, unadorned record, and standardised systems of measurement, perhaps represents the moment when large areas of Irish urban rather than rural space became amenable to contemporary natural historical representation. Uh, This is not to say, however, that urban gardens were thereafter immediately incorporated into the classificatory structures of of nascent Irish botanical studies. Uh, By the end of the century, some urban uh, gardeners, particularly those of the new uh, middle and upper classes, undoubtedly reflected an interest in plant varieties and exotic imported blooms that could border on the obsessive. Uh, And you get collections of the commonplace book uh, of man from 1704. I think he had something like 40 species of apple. Um, And so you get that interest in in multiple examples. It's it's common uh, across uh, large parts of Northern Europe, but it's also a phenomenon uh, in urban records of of people um, collecting multiple species, uh, both within the cities and out into the the countryside. Um, It's also certain that at least a part of the interest in plant varieties was obviously related to the concept of improvement uh, and the reshaping of Ireland, uh, in in part to conform to English or Enlightenment norms and in part to actually improve uh, species. Older understandings continue continue to flourish However, uh, partly because of the continuing resonance of biblical and classical imagery uh, uh, well past the early modern period and, and uh, into the, the 19th and present day. Uh, thus, even as he described the garden of the Dublin bookseller Mr Norman, with its fashionably curious knots and variety of choice flowers, and the room in which Norman sheltered his more tender plants and flowers from the insults of winter storms, John Dunton still thought of, the, of gardens in terms of Adam Eve, paradise and solitary retreat. Bishop Luke Wadding of Ferns, who again is like you know, the brother of the more famous Luke Uh, Bishop Luke Wadding of Ferns, a well-travelled and French-educated native of Wexford Town, not only possessed religious texts and revisited associations between the Virgin Mary and gardens, but also in 1685 brought a garden shears, a rose still and a watering pot with him when he moved into his new home beside his chapel. However, in both instances, the meaning attached to these elements had shifted to reflect contemporary events and norms uh, once again. While Dunton may have invoked the pleasures of solitude retreat in an urban garden, the contemplative figures that he imagined were the English poet Abraham Cowley and William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania. Similarly, although Bishop Wadding might superficially resemble older stereotypes of the cleric in the garden, he did so in a way that mirrored the leisured pastimes of the man about town, his garden remained fully connected to the wider world and was regulated by his imported wall clock and sundial uh, rather than by the eternal cycles of God or nature. While 17th century urban gardens certainly remained vulnerable to the vagaries of war and probably flourished more more in times of peace uh, than in in times of of, uh, unrest, a study of the faint traces that they left in the written and physical worlds uh, of their owners uh, can bring those worlds perhaps into closer focus. As an extensive part of the urban fabric of the early modern past, urban gardens, no less than the street and the other physical spaces of urban life, played a part in shaping the topographies of social change and social continuity and the lives of those who owned and used them. Uh, so thank you very much, and thanks to Linda and Bernie and the uh, uh, Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this historyhub.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the historyhub.ie website.